You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We are once again in Philippians and alternating. Cornell and I, it's been a blessing. He's been going through Corinthians and uh, we are in Philippians today, once again, and chapter 2. So we left off, I had began to examine uh, verse 4 in Philippians chapter 2. So Paul now has shifted his emphasis, and he is now focused on encouragement to the saints at Philippi to show unity. He was concerned about some of the dissension, some of the conflicts that he'd heard about as he is in prison in Rome, and he had a great love for these saints. So he wants to emphasize and encourage them to exercise love and compassion for one another. And so as he opens, as we look at this Verse 4 in chapter 2, he says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. We started to look at that last week, and we had a good question. One of them was, who is Paul referring to and others? And the emphasis here, of course, is he is writing to the saints. And specifically, he's addressing the concerns about those who are serving in some form of ministry. And as we remember in his opening prayer, he was praying for the elders and the deacons and those in service to our Lord. So he wanted them to show this great love and reveal the transformed life of a believer in that of living out the gospel. He wanted them to live in unity without any kinds of conflict, which would bring focus to the true aspect of what the gospel does in the life of a believer. So in this specific passage, he talks about do do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Now, he expresses a similar uh, desire when he exhorted the Galatians in chapter 6, verse 10. He said this, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are the household of the faith. So Paul often emphasizes our responsibility to one another, to the saints. And we're always to give preference to the saints and to show deference, to show our love, care, and provision for the brothers and sisters in Christ. And he expressed the same thing of those, the household of the faith in Galatians. 
So he has given us three principles. First of all, he warned us and exhorted him and admonished them. Uh, let's back up to the beginning of chapter 2. And he says, Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, then here's the admonition. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Now, Paul here is expressing a key element of our faith, and that is we are to exercise and practice humility. Now, you know, there's often people joking, you know, said, well, you think you're humble now, you've lost it. Well, actually, it's a command in the Greek form here. Paul isn't just suggesting that we try to seek humility. It's a command to walk humbly before one another. And Christ is the preeminent example as we're going to look at these, the essence of true humility. He's lifting up the supreme example of what humility looks like in our practice of our faith. And he points to the Lord Jesus Christ as we continue on in this text. So he's given us some negatives here that we're not to do. We're not to be selfish. We're not to exercise empty conceit, but we're to offer and live in humility. When Paul said, do not merely look out for your own interest, but to give close attention and special consideration. This is what it means to not looking out for our own interests, but to really consider others in following following this phrase. We have to understand that we're to reject any form of legal practice. And as I pointed out last time, the uh, warning that Paul gave Galatians and as well as Colossians, and which has already been expounded by Cornell, there was a warning against practice of asceticism. And that is trying to gain some kind of a spiritual... uh, closeness by practicing these uh, self-sacrifice and trying to abstain from certain things. In other words, exercising legalism. And the Judaizers were in Galatia as well as Colossians. And they were trying to practice a form of legalism and distorting the gospel as they did so. So Paul here is giving the same admonition. There's always a possibility 
in a local body, as we looked at before, to having some kind of a conflict. And yet, Paul is giving us a command of living amongst ourselves in humility, honoring others as more important than ourselves. As we consider that exhortation and actually the admonition of not seeking our own, what does that look like in our lives? It isn't just being polite at a Sunday morning worship service. It's truly looking at other people, other members of the body of Christ as those who are honored above us. Other people we're to put before ourselves. And Paul is pointing now to the gospel. He's pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ as he goes forth here. And in our culture, it's much the essence of seeking our own desires and promoting self, whether it be in the realm of our social activities, we see it promoted, advertised, it's practice in politics. Everyone is seeking their own. They have a narcissistic approach to life. Their whole philosophy is, what can I do for myself? How can I be this? And how can I get recognized? How can I get more? How can I... Always pointing to self. A Christian is always looking out for others. Not how they can build up or express their own desires and have people somehow looking up to them. We should be examples of Christ, who the Lord God creator of this earth humbled himself and came here in the incarnation, which is one of the greatest events in all history, became like a man. He was fully man, fully God. And we're going to look at that in just a while. So as we consider what Paul mentions here, he's promoting spiritual unity, and he's also looking out for the interest of others. This is the positive side of unity. In regards to others as more important than ourselves, uh, it's similar to a passage in Romans where Paul says this in Romans 12, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep, Romans 12, 15. Or, to pursue things which make for peace and the building up of one another, and not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything which make a brother stumble. And Paul expressed that exhortation in Romans 14, verses 19 and 21. Paul is teaching us through this text that there are two things which are absolutely essential before there can be real peace and true unity. First, there is the common faithfulness. And Paul said this in two, verse 2, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in the Spirit, intent on one purpose. Do you realize, do we reflect upon, we know uh, 
theoretically and we know biblically that we're members of one another. We are all baptized in one spirit. We are all one with Christ. Paul here is pointing back to that. So he's looking backward to the cross and what Christ has done in us for all those that are truly regenerated and have placed saving faith in Jesus Christ. And he's looking forward to how this manifests in our lives. So he was saying that the only way we can rid ourselves of empty conceit and vain glory or a spirit of self selfishness and division was to be linked together in the common object, which is Jesus Christ. The only hope for peace among men is for them to leave their own personal thrones and humble themselves and bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only, <clears throat> as we realize, it is only that we belong to God that we're anything before Christ. When we think of what we were prior to salvation, there is no difference between us and the unregenerate. The only difference is the grace of God and God has renewed us and transformed us and he is conforming us to the image of his son. And we have to realize that. We look around at others and they may be more mature or less mature as believers. Paul here, remember, is addressing the Philippian saints. So he's specifically talking to these saints, wanting to understand that they're all one in Christ. He wanted them to demonstrate that in this Roman city in Philippi, where the primary essence of the unregenerate was to exalt themselves. All they thought about was fulfilling their needs, their desires, and these saints during this period of time were to live out the gospel, and that's what God's called us to. And what's that look like? were to humble ourselves. Beyond our common faith and obedience to Christ, there's another principle, and that is humility. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interest of others. Verse 4, humility is the essence of an essential for us to have perfect unity. This means that the gospel asks every single believer to exercise humility and consider others as more important than ourselves. We're to hold such a view of ourselves and our condition that we esteem others as better. We want to ask in our flesh, what is my right and what do I deserve? But we need to ask, what is best for everyone else? What can I do in service to the Lord to help others? When we look at scripture, it shows us our nature, our sin nature. And we see ourselves, as we look at Christ, we're humbled by Christ and what he has done on the cross. We should have a concern for everyone. And as we look at this principle, we find it throughout the New Testament. 
the unbeliever puts himself first and God is out of the picture completely. But the Bible teaches us that we as Christians are just the antithesis or the opposite of that. We are the ones who are serving God and we're esteeming God and others as more important than ourselves. Scripture tells us to carry each other's burdens that we may fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Anyone? Linda. Good. Linda just pointed out in one of the texts where this is illuminated, she said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. If we truly love the Lord our God and esteem him above all else, and we love others as we love ourselves, we are fulfilling the law of Christ. <clears throat> Paul said this in Galatians 6, Though I am free and belong to no one, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. I'm sorry, this is 1 Corinthians 9, 19 and 22. I've become all things to all men, that by all means I might save some. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves, Romans 12, 10. As we consider all the admonitions and all the exhortations, we're always looking to the other. And this is what Paul is lifting up in this text. This is the very essence of Christian conduct. Paul has gone from concern over their worrying about him and praying for him, sending Epaphroditus to bring a gift for him and to express the love of the saints toward Paul. He turns back now to focusing on the Philippians the believers in Philippi and their conduct. He wants them to conduct themselves as true believers to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so how do we express this essence of humility? I, once again, I want to refer to C.S. Lewis and his uh, quote that he had expressed in mere Christianity. How is it possible to acquire a character which will truly deny itself for others? If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud and this is the big step. At least nothing whatever can be done before that. If we can recognize the sin of pride in our lives and we can recognize who we are apart from Christ, then that brings us to true humility. The second step in regarding humility 
is to humble yourself before God. Peter writes this, All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Well, you might think if you're humble yourself before God and admit his worth, that we have every right to expect others should be humble as well. It doesn't work that way. It isn't dependent upon the other's actions or behavior, another believer. It depends on our faithfulness to God's word. He has called each of us to exercise that humility, and we're not to do so in response to think that everyone's going to show that humility towards us. Each of us are accountable before God to exercise this humility. To admit our total unworthiness is to see ourselves as we are apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. The final essence in this is involving the daily worship with Christ. He is the source of our power and our strength, and we must draw upon him daily. Without him, we can do nothing. And Paul, later on in Philippians 4, of course, the familiar verse, I can do everything through him who gives me strength referring to Jesus Christ. So as we consider how this is done, we can obey God's commands by the whole power of God's Spirit within us. Remember, we're indwelt as his children by his Spirit. We have then the capacity to obey God. We have the capacity to repent when we do sin. And then we are able to obtain God's forgiveness in so doing. And that is where we begin to exercise humility. First, by acknowledging ourselves to God when we sin. Second, to truly humble ourselves in seeing who we are without Christ. Now we're going to look at one of the what some theologians say is the greatest passage in all of the New Testament. In a few verses, we're going to see that Christ's life from eternity past to eternity future and see God's purpose in salvation. Going on to verse 5, Paul says this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Christ is the model of spiritual unity. The incarnation is the central essence of that expression of humility. If we understand, Paul says this, he was not just revealing the incarnation as a, a theological truth, which is profound, but he's given us the unparalleled example of perfect humility as a completely powerful persuasion to believers. The incarnation calls believers to follow Jesus Christ. It's an incomparable example of humility, self-denial, self-giving, self-sacrifice, selfless love as Christ 
lived it out in obedience and submission to his Father's will. Verse 5, in this transition, is from encouragement to unity to the illustration of the supreme illustration. The attitude both looking forward and backward, it backward in the sense that he is just giving us do nothing from selfish and empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important in yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but those of others. It looks forward to the principle of Jesus' fulfillment as he reveals in verses 6 through 8. The goal of believers is having the attitude of spiritual unity in the body of Christ. The same mind, the same love, united in spirit, on the intent for one purpose. This unity in the church can come from the attitude of humility, of believers truly thinking of others is more important. It's manifest in Christ. In John 12, the Lord makes it clear. He said this, The one who says he abides in Christ ought to himself also walk in like manner as he walked. Jesus commanded us to take my yoke upon you and lean on, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew eleven twenty nine. That's a familiar verse to many of us. But that exhortation from the Lord God himself is the essence of what that humility produces. As we look to Christ as our supreme example and the love that he expressed in his son. <clears throat> in yourselves, in this text is not directed only to individuals' personal virtue, but it encompasses the whole church. Have this attitude in yourselves. It's not just talking to some individual. Paul is expressing this to the body of Christ. <clears throat> they wanted to hold uh, honored positions and respect from everyone and they wanted people to serve him. Even the Jews of the day when Christ, during his incarnation, he was their Messiah, their King, and their preeminent Savior. And yet, they looked to themselves and wanted to know who would be the greatest. Christ had just washed their feet and humbled himself and he came not to, to be served, but to serve. Here we have creator God of the universe stooping down and washing the feet of the disciples. <clears throat> and in the same context, later they're arguing amongst themselves who's going to be the greatest in heaven. What a picture of our hearts how deceitful, how despicable our hearts are. Having God incarnate humble himself and then 
looking at one another and trying to figure out which one of us is going to be the greatest in heaven, as the disciples did. <clears throat> the Jews expected the Messiah to be a king and a prominent individual to be greatly honored, but he came as a suffering servant. He was rejected by them. But God's way was that his son was born in a humble family and in a humble place. We're commanded to follow his example of humility. He expressed as a man that humility, being fully God and fully man. Paul teaches this about Christ's perfect example of humility and expounds on the descent of God's Son from heaven to earth, describing his exalted position of glory. We got to think about our inner man should be continually set on this, which is also Christ. We should have the mind of Christ. The attitudes described in one through four are both negative and positive. We have the warning about being selfish, empty conceit, and then again we're told to be exercise humility of mind and considering others as more important. There are similar texts throughout the scriptures. Uh, I just read the one where Christ exhorted them to take his yoke upon them. <clears throat> and then we also have, this is a new commandment which I give you, that you love one another either, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. And then Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1.6, he says this, You also be imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The one who says he abides with him ought also to walk in the same manner as he walked. So as we look at the Christian walk and those who have been saved by God's grace and we look at the aspect of how that is lived out, we look to our Savior as the preeminent example. Obviously, we're not going to do anything that emulate God and His divine acts as some propose to do, and I appreciate the ministry of Justin Peters exposing the heresy of those thinking somehow they can appropriate the deity of God, which is no man can hold. But we are to emulate the love and the goodness that God exercised here as the incarnate Christ. And that's what Paul is calling us to. <clears throat> when we see our sinfulness and we truly understand that he sent his son to save us, we're truly humbled by that. Paul says this, I am the chief of sinners. Anyone is better than myself. Nothing but the cross can make a man esteem another better than himself. Apart from Christ, we couldn't do that. How could we? 
Would we look at our neighbor, the unregenerate that's cursing God and living a life of depravity? Look at them and not think that we're somehow better in our own actions and behavior? Even as an unbeliever, we would think that in some cases. But as we look at our hearts and recognize what we truly are apart from Christ, we're no different. This regeneration, this work that God has done in us, brings us to a focus on his glory and his greatness. We can't walk through this life as Christians expressing our desire to follow God and love God and not be obedient to his commands. He's exhorted us. He's given us admonition to love him and to walk humbly before him. <clears throat> when we see our sinfulness and truly understand that God sent his son to save us, that has to be a place of bringing us to our knees in humility. The old self must be crucified, and it's only at the cross that this will happen. Paul writes to the Ephesians in 2.14, He himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. There is one man from two, thus making peace. This is the only basis for peace and unity. Remember, as Cornell just taught that recently, the dividing wall at the temple where the Jews had a separate place to worship and the Gentiles had to keep out of that area. So they had what was known as the dividing wall. But in Christ, there is no Jews and no Gentiles. They're all one in Christ, as Paul expresses again in Galatians. So as we look at the two sides brought together, as it was illustrated in the dividing wall being broken down in Christ and through Christ, it can only be accomplished by the Holy Spirit in us and our united being in Christ. Paul says this in, verses, <clears throat> in the following verses, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Then he goes on to say, Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Being found in the fashion of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. Christ left his glory in heaven and was born into this sinful world. He lived here, endured shame, suffering, and eventually death on the cross and was resurrected and now sits at the right hand of the Father. We look at this and we understand that now we have a new nature. We, I want to take you to one text in closing here. If you would, turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Here Peter is expressing the virtues of a Christian, and I'll just read it quickly from verse 2 through verse 4. 
Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Think of it. We are now partakers of the divine nature. God has indwelt all those who are his true children. So we should walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.